Hey listeners, this is Brian, co-host of Nerds on History and Nerds on Film. I want to talk to you for a second. If you like the content you've been hearing on our shows, please, by all means, go to nerdonomy.com right now and click on the merch link. That will take you to our own built-in store where you can go and buy t-shirts made from content on the shows as well as original content. All of our shirts are made in the U.S., so you can actually show your pride for the nerds and be ethical at the same time. Do it. Do it now, please. Thank you. Sound check. Sound check. Testing one, two, three. Sound Testing. check. Sound and check. Check, 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 check. Check one. Unique New York, unique New York, unique New York, unique New York. But I got it, 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 but I Brian? Yeah? What the hell are you doing? Vocal warm-ups. I learned them in college. Oh. Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I am Eric Brickmont. Brian, I have noticed as we are uh, recording this podcast in your lovely home, thank you, by the way, for letting us do that, mm-hmm. uh, you've got quite an impressive collection of wine behind you and other spirits. Yeah, we definitely do. We have quite a bit of wine behind us. My um, roommates are very much enthusiasts of wine. It's interesting, though, because... We've always been, I think human beings have always been interested in taking their food and somehow turning it into something that can make them feel different. That sounds kind of odd, but, (laughs) you know, I think you were talking about how you you can back this up better than I can. With every culture, there's always been some sort of fermented beverage, correct? Yeah, it's kind of one of those universal constants that just crops up and has found its way into just about every part of our, our society in one way or another. And in ancient times, it was a lot simpler. You know, there were two reasons for alcohol. First was ceremonial reasons, mostly relating to religious practices. And then the second was it was actually a very safe thing to drink. And if we take it back, you know, quite a bit further in ancient history, back to ancient Egypt, for example, water was something you didn't want to touch. Water was no bueno. Um, the leading cause of death today is a condition called, and in Egypt today even, is called schistosomiasis, which is caused by direct contact with the water and a secretion caused by river snails. And so if you were drinking this water, let alone bathing in it, but if you were actually ingesting it into your, into your body, the chances of you contracting this disease were pretty high. And hmm. just as it was back in ancient Egypt, it is still today in modern Egypt, the leading cause of death. Sure. It's a nasty, nasty little uh, little bug to have, and it kills you very slowly. And so there's a saying among Egyptologists that a beer a day keeps a doctor away. <laughs> and We were used to the apple a day keeps a doctor away. Right. In this case, it's, uh, it's the fermented uh, drink that you put in your body will, right. that will help you out. Yeah. Well, so if alcohol, in this case, well, really, we're talking beer and wine at this point. They had not discovered distilling at this point in history. That's right. So the the primary drink in ancient Egypt that everyone drank, men, women, children, everybody, mm-hmm. was beer. Sure. And it was fermented in everyone's cellar. Everyone had a small basement area that was pretty much put aside specifically for this reason. And it was 
really interesting technique. They would bake bread, they would cut the loaf in half, and then they would sift water through the bread. And what would happen is that the yeast that was you know in the mixture would go ahead and now become in the liquid that's uh, that's been captured by the vessel. And then they would put natural sugars like uh, dates and uh, honey, and they would use that not only as a sweetener and a provider of taste, but right. as the catalyst for the fermentation. And then you would keep that in your cellar, and, and that's what you drank. I mean, beer production was one of the primary duties of the children in the home. It was their job to make the beer, hmm. and when they were done with it, they would drink it because it was safe. Yeah, I know, right? Irony compared to today's laws. Thinking about that, you mentioned that they added... No honey and dates and all these other sweeteners to actually kick the fermentation process going. Of course, they didn't know that it was a chemical reaction. They just knew that it, this would... They just knew if they left it there long enough, it would become safe to drink. Become safe to drink, right. So my brother happens to, for those who have been listening to our podcast, Sean has been our editor. And Thank he, you, Sean, by the way. You yeah. do an awesome job. We appreciate your work. Absolutely. And we'll maybe be seeing more of him uh, as a guest host on some of our future episodes of both the podcasts. Stay tuned. Stay tuned, exactly. His day job is he works as a manager of, um, of a brewing place, uh, Steamworks Brewing. He actually has been involved in the brewing of the beer. So this is what I know about the brewing process, which is, to be honest, very, very little. But what I do know, the essential process of making beer is you have to make a syrup, which they call wort, right? So a wort? A wort, wort. I don't know if it's spelled the same way the... Uh, is this because is uh, beer was originally made by witches back in, in Western Europe? <laughs> I have no idea. Okay, sorry. Yeah, we should Twitter sphere. Twitter that. Uh, tweet to us that if you guys know. Why is it called a wart, ladies and gentlemen? Anyway, please go ahead. I'm sure Sean will know, actually. Yeah. We'll probably ask him later. So the idea is you cook the, you know, the grains and the, and the hops and everything down into a, a concentration before you actually start to ferment it, add the yeast to it, and ferment the, uh, the beer. Which makes me wonder, if there's no concentration taking place, this is probably considerably less potent than the beer and wine that we drink today some estimates that i've heard is because we only have some surviving recipes in fact the world's first recipes were beer recipes um but the recipes that we have surviving really don't give us too much insight except for the fact that it is very likely that this beer had about as much alcohol as a non-alcoholic beer okay which does have alcohol in it right just, uh, it's reduced yeah, not very much, but enough to kill off anything that you didn't want living in your stomach. And that, right. that was the most important thing of this, right? That's not to say that they did not create a more potent beer, however. And so by fermenting it longer, you could do and achieve sure. that. And in ancient Egypt in particular, well, that was actually considered a gift from the gods. The more um, potent the beer, the, the, oh, yeah. the greater the that gift. That was the good stuff. Gotcha. Beer was considered a gift from the goddess Hathor. And there's a very funny story that was told mm. to children actually, that tied all of this together. Right. So I want to tell it to you folks. It has a, the delightfully cheerful title of The Destruction of Mankind. <laughs> and <laughs> this was a children's story. Destruction of Mankind? No. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what led to Prohibition. But that we'll talk about later. Absolutely. Um, uh, essentially, all of the ancient Egyptians stopped paying attention to the gods, this myth tells. Uh, particularly Ra, who was kind of the head of this hierarchy of gods. And so he became very upset and disdainful of mankind, and he decided to punish them. So what he does is he calls upon his favorite daughter, the goddess Hathor, who had been traditionally the goddess of love, dance, music, drink, all of those things that made people 
uh, happy and wonderful to be alive. If she were around today, she'd be the patron saint of Los Angeles at night, basically. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Or Las Vegas, maybe. Or Las Vegas. Probably Las Vegas. <laughs> patron, patron goddess of Las Vegas. There we go. That's great. So she is imbued with these special powers um, that make her actually far more fierce and dangerous. And she becomes the form of a lioness. Her name, Sekhmet, in ancient Egyptian, literally means the powerful one. So as this new goddess, she kind of morphs and becomes a new god as a result of all of this, she is sent down to Earth and she just starts slaughtering people in the worst possible ways. You know, she's disemboweling them and eating them and their blood is just spilled out all over the place. This and is a children's story? This is a children's story, yeah. <laughs> but wait, it has a good moral. Um, and so it becomes to the point where, you know, like the River Nile is just red with blood. Okay. It's pretty bad. Now all of mankind is fearing her and hiding in you know, the tombs of their ancestors and wherever they can find to get away from her. Quickly, Ra realizes, uh-oh, I went ahead and made her too violent, and now what am I going to do? I'm not going to have anyone to learn a lesson. They're all going to be dead. She's gonna, you know, not going to stop until she kills everybody. So he calls upon another one of his children, the god Toth, god of wisdom, and he flies down from the heavens in the form of an ibis, and he has to come up with this idea to trick his sister into stopping what she's doing because she's uncontrollable now she has the this taste for blood and she can't be stopped so he comes up with this idea he's going to find the largest lake of water that he can he's going to turn the water into beer he is going to color it red and he eventually tricks his sister and says you know hey you've done such a great job at killing all these humans we wanted to thank you and so what we've done is we have turned all of the waters of the world into blood your new favorite drink but not only did we do that we gave it the flavor of beer your old favorite drink and so now you have the best of both worlds and go to it and that's exactly what she does she starts lapping up every single cubic liter of that lake and pretty soon she gets completely hammered passes out <laughs> he takes her back up to the heavens <laughs> and mankind can emerge victorious alcohol save the day yeah and it was interesting though because the moral of the story was uh, on two fronts you know be nice to your gods uh everything in moderation and then she also comes to the realization hey you know you made me way too powerful you shouldn't have made me so powerful and so this goddess sekhmet then transforms and becomes actually now a protector god and she becomes the protector of the king hmm. uh, in battle but it's kind of interesting to see how they used alcohol as the device by which to uh, to pacify and get her <laughs> subdued and taken care of. This is all a children's story. It's That's pretty great. Good. Yeah, <laughs> That's great. Well, it just goes to show you how important they saw beer to their society. You know, it was cleaner than water, so therefore it probably was the preferred drink. Now, did the Egyptians have wine at all, or was it just they beer? They did. They did have wine. And they had a very sophisticated wine industry in place. In fact... I mentioned that alcohol for use of, uh, of clean uh, drinking fluid was good, but they also used it for uh, various religious purposes. And that's how wine actually originated in Egypt. The wine that we think of today, which is you know, created and fermented from, from the juice of grapes, mm -hmm. was introduced into Egypt, but it took time to get there. It actually okay. had to come through the Greek and, and Phoenician trade routes. So originally it was rooted in Greece. Correct. That's what I thought. Okay. However... The Egyptians, long before that, had developed their own form of wine uh, that was created from date uh, from the date tree. But when I say that, I don't actually mean the date fruit itself. I mean the actual tree itself. They used it bark. To... No, they used the sap. Interesting. So it'd I be know. almost more like a mead. 
Yes, than... exactly. Well, kind of. I mean, they, they were able, all we know is as palm wine. And we have a recipe for it, and people have tried creating it before. The problem was it was really expensive because you had to actually kill the tree in the process. And, and then press the To produce it. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what they would do is they would only use this wine during the embalming process. Uh, it may have been it may have been drunk for very specific religious ceremonies, probably associated with only the higher echelons of society, like the pharaoh. But we the the real references that we find to it are being used during the embalming process as a disinfectant, mm-hmm. as a religious and an actual you know chemical disinfectant. It would slow down the decay process of the body while it was slowly being mummified because you know this was a long process; sure. it didn't just happen in a couple of days. This palm wine continued to be produced throughout Egyptian history for this purpose. However, once the Greeks and Phoenicians had kind of re, you know, introduced wine very early in Egyptian trade routes and history, then they started cultivating their own uh, vineyards and produced very fine, very delicious wine for enjoyment more than religious ceremonies. Cool. Very cool. We forget that beer came originally from the Egyptians because we think of beer the beer that we think of today coming from Belgium and from Germany, right? Um, which I guess they probably, you know, through the chain of history, they, they got those recipes and perfected them. Oh, sure. Over time. And I know that certainly in the Middle Ages, this whole concept that water was dangerous to drink was true even really up until almost the 20th century or up until really the late 1800s when we had a better understanding of sanitation. Yeah. Even still, though, in some places of the world, and even in the world today, it's still too dangerous yeah. to drink the water. I actually can't help but think of um, the company Ethos. Mm-hmm. Their whole method... No, they, of course, if you go to Starbucks, you see they have a partnership right. with Ethos. Um, and their whole mission is to promote clean water practices. So every bottle of water you buy there goes to... In fact, you might say it's Ethos Mythos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And... What I find interesting, though, is what made us go into the idea of distilling, taking what we already have and actually refining it even further. You know, I'm not exactly sure. I know a lot of it came out of the Middle Ages, and I know it came from the desire to have just a more pure form. Right. Um, and probably for all the reasons that we've already cited, you know, yeah. to, to make it as, as clean as possible and probably being used for medicinal right. purposes as well. Well, I'm sure also if you raise the alcohol content, it would also be less likely to expire. Right. Because they, re- they finally realized at one point it was a preservative. Uh, that would explain why rum became such a big trade. High alcohol content could tra- make the, the trip across to other parts of the country, other parts of the world. You know, I, I would also just add on to it real yeah. quick that we, we definitely think of beer and wine as the staples of alcohol in the Western world. But, you know, 7,000 years ago in China, they were producing the very first, you know, rice wines. Right. Um, and that is still very much drunk in that part of the world sure. today. Uh, sake, for example, in Japan. In yeah. Japan. But, and then polke in the Americas. Polke, and that's, that's a kind of a, a rough an undistilled right. it's agave a, yeah, uh, it, it's nectar. Exactly. And, well, it doesn't just have to be associated with the cactus. It can actually be fermented from other juices, depending on where you are, and it has different names. But in Mexico, polque is is right. made from cactus. And when I was in Mexico not that long ago, we when we were visiting the pyramids, actually, they had a little place set up at one of the gift shops there, and they showed you exactly how they make polque, and then they had some to drink, and then lo and behold, when I was at a party... Not that much later. <laughs> Some might have say I indulged a little too much in the polke at that time. I don't actually really get drunk. At least I don't think I do. Uh, Eric comes from Belgians. 
they invented beer, yeah. modern beers. So he has a very high constitution. I do. I think I think that night, and my wife will be able to um, confirm this better than I. I believe I had seven double shots of tequila and three cups of pulque. I may have had a beer. I don't remember. I don't remember being out of control and drunk. I think I may have been a little buzzed at that point. But um, that's pretty much how much it takes to really get me at least slightly intoxicated. And for some people, that would be death. Yeah. (laughs) And Uh, no, I did not go to Chico State. That was not my school. I was not conditioned in the beautiful (laughs) campus of Chico. We now know never to challenge you to a drinking contest. You will lose. Lose. You will lose. But we'll have fun, that's for sure. That's true, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, to bring this to a more personal perspective, we live in a country where our roots come from a very conservative religious background. And what I mean by that is, now obviously not everybody in this country is conservative religiously, but the Puritans were the European immigrants who started the cultural norms for this country. Yeah, and some of the first to put down permanent roots and and settle what would eventually become the United States. Definitely. And you can't help but notice that around the times of the Protestant Reformation going forward, Christians had different perspectives of the consumption of alcohol. The church was the Catholic Church was always okay with it, right? But as long as it weren't you weren't being destructive. And I know that up in times to, even to the American Revolution, wine and beer was served in every household, and was it was served morning, noon, and night. It was not uncommon to have a glass of it, a beer or wine, with every meal. I'm referencing a movie that Ken Burns made recently. Uh, on prohibition it was very good by the way if anyone hasn't hasn't gone out and seen it please uh is it available on netflix i thought it was Uh, it may be i know it's on pbs and it's been repeated a couple times yeah check um, check on netflix or hulu you might be able to find it on there it's very good and no little factoids like general washington before he was president you know uh making sure that all the soldiers in the revolution got at least one cup of rum per day and there's something to be said about that now alcohol we all know the effects it has in the body. At the very least, it relaxes you. You know, it releases some endorphins in your body, some dopamines in your body. And we, but we know that, of course, to the taken to the extreme, higher brain function begins to, to turn off, <laughs> and you become um, a wild animal. So, and it, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but this belief that uh, alcohol actually keeps you warm is false. Is it, it not? actually lowers your body temperature? Lowers your body temperature. Yeah. So we always think of those um, Saint Bernards with a little right. uh, what is it called? A little barrel of brandy around their neck. Yeah. I mean, is there any truth to that? Uh, there's no tr- other than it creates the warming sensation, which is really just the chemical reaction of the alcohol burning. <laughs> right, right, right. Against the the the, the you know the tissue in your body, it, that's all it is. Okay. It's just that it's just a sensation. Yeah. Doesn't actually have any impact on on your body's temperature. Of course, if you're drinking alcohol warm, probably going to be more of like a level, you know, if you're drinking like a right. malted wine. What about the St. Bernard? Was that ever true? I think there was truth that there that they did carry brandy about, but was it meant to to take out to people who needed the to to keep them warm and the That was the, that was So the, they were actually killing them is what they were doing. They were causing them to probably have hypothermia rather than It was actually making things worse. Oh, yeah. great. Thanks, Beethoven. Yeah, we did we did the best we could. So, um but what I did find interesting is that the moment we started in this country making this distilled alcohol from grain, you know, now keep in mind, of course, we use grain for beer too, right? So there's right. no harm in the grain itself. And when we get to the Industrial Revolution in this country and we find a way of manufacturing grain alcohol on a distilled level, we noticed a couple of surprising things, which was an alarming rise in domestic violence in this country because it was because alcohol was now cheap. Yeah. Um, Anyone and, could get their hands on it. Right. Originally, distilled alcohol was more expensive. Now that it was honed down to a process, anybody can get their hands on it. 
And also, weird little economic things like glass boomed because he had to make the bottles too, you know. Oh, okay. And the glasses and the, yeah, yeah interesting. To, to be able to hold the, the alcohol. And that's kind of the roots of really what started the prohibition movement, you know. It was mm. these women who were so fed up of hearing stories of their friends getting beaten to death or beaten to a pulp by husbands who just couldn't control themselves. And to be fair, other factors took into play too. You know, there were some very hard economic times in the early parts of the 19th century. Uh, unfortunately, we, we, we kind of went the reverse way. When we hit the Great Depression, you know, we were thinking, oh, I wish I could have a beer. Oh, crap, we can't. It's illegal. <laughs> you know, what did we do? This is a mistake. <laughs> Definitely a mistake. <laughs> we should work on fixing this. Then, well, of course, you go to a speakeasy and it'd be fine. So, well, you know, yeah. I, I just want to pause for a moment because it's interesting what you said about women you know, literally just being fed up with the fact that, that they themselves yeah. or their friends Women or family member. the prohibition movement. Yeah, that they were being, you know, that they were being abused as a result of so much more available alcohol and, and the, you know, the very real effect that it has on people, that alcoholism is a is a disease. Uh, it affects people in a lot of different ways. Yeah. And there's folks who, you know, the second they touch it, let it touch their lips, they yeah. are hooked. Yeah. And let's break this down for a second, because alcoholism isn't always a disease, but it can be a disease. Right. Now that means you have a genetic predisposition to... To addictive behavior to, in general, not just behavior, alcohol, but exactly. addiction in general. To addiction, and how, but it's amplified with the use of alcohol. Right, yeah. exactly. So, And then there are folks, of course, who suffer from traumatic experiences in their life who right. go to its more subtle but mind-altering effects that, that right. of course, cause you to keep coming back to it and back to it. And, of course, at this point in time, we didn't really know that right. there is a physiological reason I wonder when the word alcoholism actually came into common use. Probably around the time of the Prohibition. We should actually look that up. We should look it up. Uh, I I would like to say, though, I saw an interesting image online when I was doing a little research, and it was um, a whole group of women all sitting with beer glasses in their hands, and there was a big sign up behind them that said, our lips won't touch the lips that touch these glasses. And I thought, wow, that's one hell of a statement. You know, you you think of that and to bring it back to history... I couldn't help but think of um, the play Lysistrata, right? Mm. Uh, for those who don't know the story of Lysistrata, Lysistrata was the woman who convinced all the women in the city to prevent the women from sleeping with their husbands because they opposed <laughs> the war that they were waging. Right. So women have uncanny power over men by they sure do. doing Not to be things. confused with Eric Estrada, although they do <laughs> look very similar to one another. <laughs> Eric Estrada, yes. Sorry, Eric. <laughs> Mr. 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 Estrada. Mr. Estrada. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty funny. But at the same time, I know that obviously prohibition came about as a result of, of the effects that more available alcohol had on folks. But alcohol for a long time has had positive influence on, on culture and society in general. How many times have we seen or heard or engaged in sitting around with our friends or our family members and we're all sharing a drink? Sure. You know, it's something that has brought us together and brought us close. And when prohibition was put into effect, we lost something in that. Yeah. And we lost it in a time when we really needed it. Sure. You know, when there were a lot of terrible things going on in the world that that led to just our desire and our want to be together and, and comfort each other and stay right. together. Right. And you mentioned, you touched on very briefly the speakeasies, you know, these places, these communities where it was very much under the radar where everyone would come together and, and they would be able to engage in drinking of moonshine. 
And I recently saw an excellent movie. I recommend it to anyone who would like to go out there and see it. It wasn't a documentary, so it was definitely had a lot of creative license applied to it. But Mm -hmm. the theme of it was very, very true to the period. And it was called Lawless. Excellent, excellent movie. And it's based on a true story about um, three brothers who were together during the time of Prohibition. I believe it was in Arkansas. I can't remember the state that it was in. But they had their own moonshine business. You know, they were putting together uh, alcohol illegally, and which the local authorities, of course, were aware of. And they simply, you know, paid them off with a jar here and a jar there. And they let them continue to do their work. And they didn't really bother them or care. But eventually some more high-profile uh, folks who were very, very adamant came on in and came in from some of the big cities like Chicago and New York and yeah. Los Angeles and really tried to put an end to what they were doing. And it resulted in a lot of horrible violence. You know, a lot of people sure. lost their lives. And these communities were, in a lot of ways, you know, ripped apart and torn apart as a result of it. So, you know, I understand the need to keep things under control, to create a more peaceful time, a more pure time, but you can take it to the extreme. And I think that's what Prohibition ended up really yeah. doing. This is actually the first time when you really think about it in our country's history that one of our just our common practices of every day was all of a sudden not legal anymore. What were we talking about? We're talking about this tradition of alcohol going back thousands and thousands yeah. of years. And suddenly overnight, we took it away from everyone. Right. But this is also, it goes deeper to that. These women were convinced that sobriety was a virtue. You know, it yeah. was God, God's will that you live a sober life. And there's lots of religions, lots of denominations of Christianity that do not put alcohol even in the religious uh, ceremonies anymore. No, At all. At yeah, all. it was completely cut out. I was raised Catholic, so I'm used to wine every week when it comes to going to Mass. Um, but, you know, I can't help but think of Lutheranism. Lutheranism, it's kind of up to the church, but there's a lot of churches where they'll use grape juice. Sure. And if you look at the, the strict kind of commune-type societies like the Amish and the and the Pennsylvania Dutch and what have you, who have very, very strict etiquette and code relating to their beliefs. Alcohol is, of course, completely and totally forbidden. Mm-hmm. Um, I do also want to make sure we, we make that distinction and tie in that it wasn't just women who were bringing about prohibition. It was anyone who wanted to, to latch on to that idea of, of getting rid of alcohol. Right. right. Like women the religious institutions. Yeah. Carrie Nation is the one who really like yeah. was the most notable prohibitioner um, and but of course, local, or sorry, I was yeah. going to say that a lot of politicians took this as an opportunity to try to boost their image by playing the the pure card, right. by saying that we are the we're the best ones, and they took it to the an extreme and brought law enforcement in and caused a yeah. lot of these uh, you know disruptions to occur yeah. as a result. But these were politicians who did this because they thought it was going to get them more votes, not that because they actually yeah. believed. Didn't quite have that message. effect, did it? No, not exactly. And it's argued, not really argued very much because. It's almost a consensus, really, that alcohol was actually easier to come by during Prohibition than it was uh, after Prohibition or before because sure, of man. the fact that anybody could go to a speakeasy, say the password, and buy, you know. And God knows what you were buying. Sure. <laughs> I mean, and to if clarify, you ended up blind as a result of your, sure. your night out, that probably well, wasn't uncommon. To, to, to clarify, you know, the moonshine was a, was a, a regional thing. That's, that's more Kentucky and the South, mm. because all moonshine is, is unaged bourbon. Yeah. And bourbon can only come from, from bourbon County in Kentucky. So hmm. there, if there were speakeasies in that part of the, of the country, sure. And maybe they were importing it, you know, or bootlegging it, but you know, it was anything people could need to go and get a glass of beer would sure. need to go to a speakeasy. But I find really interesting is that, um, I took a tour of the Coors Brewing Company. When in, was that? 
Uh, this was... You were in college. No, actually. No. <laughs> I was 10 years old. Oh, okay. Yeah. Even better. So obviously I couldn't fully enjoy the tour because at the end you go, you go to a tasting room. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> but my dad's a big Coors man. He's always been a Coors man. Not Coors Light, the actual, the original Coors. And it is in Golden, Colorado. We went there and we they talk, of course, about, you know, because Coors has been around since the late 1800s. What yeah. did they do during Prohibition when they weren't allowed to make beer? They made malted milk is what they did. Hmm. Uh, because they were, we were already familiar with the malting process as far as malting the grains. So they would just malt milk instead. I thought it was kind of interesting to see how these companies that were producing alcoholic beverages had to adjust because of the laws that were taking effect. And eventually, of course, Prohibition was repealed. Right. It was repealed, I believe 1933 was the year it was repealed. Uh, Shortly after Roosevelt took office, I know that. Yeah. But, you know, you were, you were mentioning this to me earlier, and this is something that... Um, not a lot of people, I think, are really even aware of that alcohol was not the only substance that was outlawed as a result of prohibition. Yeah, we don't really think about it that much because it wasn't necessarily in the letters of the Constitution. Right. Because um, thou const- shalt not smoke thy's doobie. Yes, there you go. You hit the <laughs> nail on the head. Marijuana was not illegal until about the prohibition era, and they used the spirit of prohibition to further leg- other legislation that made marijuana illegal. My grandmother used to grow marijuana. Now, for very different reasons, however, my grandmother used to use it as bird seed ah. <laughs> yeah. for feeding the birds on the farm, well, which she grew up on. That's what's actually funny is that the the plant itself is actually incredibly versatile. It's not just for taking the, the buds and, and smoking them at all. You can use hemp to make lots of different food items, clothing, rope, up until... The 20th century was made predominantly from hemp, lots of clothing, like I said earlier. the I'm pretty sure some of the documents that the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence were drafted on were drafted on hemp-based paper. So it was a very dominant part and a very, very, very valuable crop in our country prior to it being illegalized. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in many parts of the United States, it is still completely illegal of course there are parts that have now passed medical marijuana laws that permit that allow it to be and that's um, an interesting concept too because those are states that are making those regulations and the federal government has still very much said it it is illegal sorry snoop dog so they're in they're very much in conflict with one another the articles of the constitution state that no state government can overrule the federal government there is that there is a clause that establishes the supremacy of the federal government and yet we have still have these conflicts 200 years later on things mostly about how we what we do with our lives recreationally <laughs> right right you know? right right no absolutely i have a fun little factoid for you please share it with the group with the group uh, with the, the group. group how many of us are here <laughs> just you and me but we're a group oh okay i guess we are kind of a group <laughs> our yes. listeners are a group that's true you know we're i retract my previous you. statement thank you listeners you are our group yes <laughs> Have you ever heard of Sagittarius B2? Is that a type of marijuana? <laughs> it's it's not. No, it's actually tying it back into alcohol for a minute. Okay, because you know I I don't partake, but you know <laughs> I do I do know people who do. And hey man, different species of of marijuana have very weird names. Man, you ever had any of that Sagittarius B2? That stuff's amazing it'll blow your mind it'll send you into outer space man apparently eric brickmont just turned into tom waits <laughs> damn it can you sing the piano has been drinking no okay <laughs> i'm not gonna try okay um 
Sagittarius B2 is actually a, a cloud in space, outer space, that is, not inner space. And it is uh, composed very much so. Good to know there's a difference. Yeah. <laughs> it's composed very much of alcohol and ethanol. Really? Booze in space, yes. So, yeah, because we have to remember that ethyl alcohol is the alcohol that is produced by fermentation. Right. And this I see is... propyl alcohol is the one that will make you go blind. <laughs> and 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 kill you if right. you drink it. This is the stuff. I mean, this is this is um, naturally forming out in outer space. And to put it into perspective, we are talking about 100 billion liters of alcohol in vapor form. In vapor form in Sagittarius B two. So I just want to remind our listeners that this is nerds on history. And for those of you who are Star Trek fans out there, as I am. You'll remember a certain type of technology that was developed by the Federation. It's called the Bussard Collectors. And those of you who are not familiar with this, it is, um, let me paint the picture for you. If you imagine the, the Enterprise, right, that's a pretty familiar picture in everyone's mind. And those two little pylon kind of things that hang off of the back, they have the little kind of swirly, whirly little light guys on the top of them. Those are the thrusters, aren't they? Well, they're, the they're part of like the propulsion system, right? Right. But they can also be reversed. And I don't remember what episode did this. I think it was something in Star Trek Next Generation. But they can suck in matter as well. And they used it to like suck in some energy from, from a nebula at one point. I want to create the Beersard Collector. <laughs> I think that this is a worthy in, uh, endeavor. I feel that we should fly out to Sagittarius B2 and collect as much alcohol as possible from right. it. And uh, we will never, we'll never run dry. That, that expression will fit will actually disappear yeah. into the annals of history and you will you will never hear it again so in other words instead of having to grow our own alcohol we can just add it to things and make alcohol and everything basically. yeah just fly out there to Sagittarius B2 and get ourselves a drink <laughs> <laughs> that would be really cool if we could do that that'd be very cool <laughs> the beer sard collectors everyone we're, we're gonna we're gonna work on this we're gonna make it happen <laughs> So just to bring it all back to home and bring it all back together, obviously alcohol has had a long history and a long tradition with pretty much every culture and society around the world for thousands upon thousands of years, and it's not going anywhere. You know, it's going to continue and it's going to stay around. And it's worth noting, you know, for all of its vices, for all of the things that it can cause for you to take advantage of and abuse and go wrong, it is still really a very amazing liquid and that it binds us and it brings us together you know it brings culture and our individual groups together as one uh to to find a common ground and you know relate to one another definitely i couldn't agree more and i know that when exercised within moderation it has actually does it does bring people together you know i can't think of how many times i've had friends over and we've shared a bottle of wine through that night over you know a much longer process have had great conversations and I think like any other food item, any other items that you can consume, because we all choose to to partake in it, that automatically brings us together on a very, very base level and it gets a conversation started. You begin to push down those barriers and begin to learn about other people around. And unfortunately there's no there's just there as there's a positive side, there's a negative side. Yeah. It, those barriers are also used for other things, like picking up women. For yeah. Example. How many marriages have started over a drink? You know? Sure. Yeah. Well, Brian, this has been fun. You know, this has been an interesting look at that funny little beverage that we oftentimes have in front of us. And I want to invite our listeners to, of course, don't take our word for it. Go out there. 
do a little research. And if you get a chance, go ahead and have a look at that Ken Burns documentary on Prohibition. It is really very well done, as Ken Burns knows how to do. Also, Lawless was an excellent movie. Uh, I've heard from many other folks who have seen it as well that they enjoyed it just as much as I did. Uh, And it's another interesting look at the other end of Prohibition from the less glamorous in the mud and the dirt and the boilers of their of their stills. Definitely. These guys were just trying to make a living. Yeah. Check them out. It's very, very, uh, very interesting stuff out there for you guys to to learn about. I agree. And I will also pose a challenge to our of age listeners. Uh, The next time you have any alcoholic beverage, I would encourage you to figure out where that drink came from. Something as simple as the Manhattan. Yeah. Probably came from Manhattan. But, <laughs> but, you know, learning history of a martini or your favorite brand of beer. Yeah. Or um, At the very least, it's a great conversation starter. Definitely. I think one of the more unique beers out there is like the Lindemann's Lambic. The, oh, the yeah. Raspberry, the framboise, the raspberry I introduced you to that, beer. too. It's you good. Did. Thank it you, so Belgium. Good. Thank and, you, Belgium. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and it made me want to go out and learn more about it and found out that they don't only have raspberry. They also have a peach-flavored beer that they make. So if you ask those questions... You open up doorways to discovering more and more about the world around you. And really, that's what this whole podcast is yeah, about. From uh, everything you can do in life, even even having a beer. Well, folks, please do not forget to follow us on the Facebook and the Twitter. Uh, we are there at Nerdonomy on Twitter. And, of course, both Nerds on History and our sister podcast, Nerds on Film, have a Facebook presence. You can please also- like us. Uh, we like us. That. We love to be liked. Definitely. We need to be liked. We have very low self-esteem, right. so please help us. And of course, our website, nerdonomy.com. And I'm hoping you're listening to this through iTunes. You can subscribe to new episodes from there automatically. So, pretty sweet. Fantastic. Well, sir, thank you as always. It's been a pleasure. Good night. Good night, Eric.